Well, it is a delight to be with you all this morning to open God's Word and to put our noses in the text and to hear from God together. Would we, um, could we go to God and ask for his blessing as we go to his Word? Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your Word. In it are the words of life, and Lord, you give life through your Word. Father, um, open our eyes to see you in all your glory. Father, help us to um, have hearts that are undistracted and, Father, that are focused as we seek to peer into your law. Lord, give us wisdom and grace. Now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what the best gift you've ever received would be you had to just scan through all the birthdays and holidays, I wonder what the best gift you've ever received might be. Is it a, a book? Is it maybe a phone? Maybe some new clothes? What, I wonder, whatever that gift you may be thinking of, I wonder what made it so special. Now, in, in my family, my mother is exceptionally good at giving gifts. She'll plan way in advance, and she'll have a multi-tiered process of how the gift is going to come to you. For my wife, on her 25th birthday or something like that, she gave her 25 gifts, uh, little things, but really thoughtful things that show that she was thinking about her. For my 17th birthday, my mom gave me a guitar, along with my dad, and it has been an awesome gift that uh, I use every day, just about if not every week. But I wonder, what makes a gift so memorable? And what makes a gift have such an impact on us? Perhaps it's the thoughtfulness that goes behind the gift, the forethought. Maybe it's the inherent worth of the gift itself. Or perhaps just that the gift was totally unexpected and totally undeserved. Well, this morning... We're going to be looking at God's Word in John chapter 3. If you have a copy of the Word, open up to John chapter 3. And there we're going to learn that God has given his own an amazing gift, the best of all gifts. The main idea, if you're taking notes this morning of this sermon, is that salvation is a radically transforming gift from the triune God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a gift that we cannot earn, but must receive by faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Salvation is a radically transforming gift from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we cannot earn, but must receive by faith in Christ. My hope is that as we look at this sweet, sweet text, that we will glory in God, that we will delight ourselves in God who has saved us for his glory, and that he has saved us by gifting us with his son. So let's dive in. Firstly, I want to see that salvation is a gift that begins with a new birth. We see this in verses 1 through 13. The context here is that 
Jesus is, is going to be speaking to a man, Nicodemus, who comes to him. But before that, if we back up in verse 23, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what we learn about Jesus just before our text is that Jesus can peer into the heart of man and he knows what's in man. And that is very true of of who we're going to see, Nicodemus. Jesus knows this man, Nicodemus. He knows the word that he needs to hear. And similarly, um, it's a word that we need to hear this morning as well. So, who is this man, Nicodemus? Well, he comes and he's a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus is going to speak to him. And he's not going to speak to him in the way that maybe Nicodemus expects. Let's look and read God's word. Verses 1 through 13. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things or understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This text is rich. There is much here. But let's step back. Who is Nicodemus? Who is this man who comes to Jesus by night, perhaps in the cover of night so as not to be seen by the other Pharisees? Well, his name, we learn, is Nicodemus. He, it says he is a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. So it's not some peon in the Pharisee group. This is a ruler of the Jews, someone who's coming and representing all of who the Pharisees are. So we know that the Pharisees were the religious zealots of the day. These are the ones who knew their Old Testament well. They studied it. And they knew the laws, and they were so careful to remain pure according to the law. And so careful, even, that they would create more laws to ensure that they would keep the law. So they were serious about 
God's word. But as the New Testament unfolds for us, they're also hypocritical. They knew the law, and yet they themselves would wield it over people and not do it themselves. And here Nicodemus comes, and he is a high-ruling official of the Pharisees. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus has even said, Are you the teacher in Israel? Nicodemus is a well-known teacher of the Pharisees. But not only that, he is one who seems to be impressed by Jesus. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, and what does he say? We know that you are from God, and what's the reason? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus seems to be impressed with this Jesus person. He, he seems to believe that God is with him. But what we know is that Nicodemus doesn't quite see the full truth of John 1.1, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, yes, with God, and the Word was God. Nicodemus has not yet fully seen who Jesus is, doesn't see that Jesus is God. What else do we learn about Nicodemus? Well, Jesus says, that he is one that needs to be born again. It says that in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus needs new life. He needs a new birth. It's, it's unequivocal that Jesus says that if he needs new birth, then that must mean he is dead in some sense. And the sense is that he is spiritually dead. Though he has physical life, though he is kicking and, and breathing, he is spiritually dead. He is a dead man walking. He has not yet experienced the supernatural transforming power of the Spirit come to live within him. Essentially, Jesus is saying to this learned ruler of the Jews that, Nicodemus, all of your studying, all of your preparation, all of your rule-keeping, all of your rigor in, in following the law, none of that can save you. None of that has, has qualified you to see the kingdom of God. It's not his Jewish ethnicity. It's not his leadership position. None of that can save him. The transformation that Jesus says Nicodemus needs is so radical that he even likens it to a birth. And what we know about birth is that it is something that is done for us, that we ourselves cannot do. Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Do you notice the passive language? You don't born, you can't give birth to yourself. No, this is a reality that must happen to us, right? My son is now two years old, and I remember his birth like it was yesterday. And it is such a miracle to see um, someone come into the world and just the utter helplessness that they have. Well, that is what's being pictured here. We are utterly helpless, and we need a new birth. So this Nicodemus 
needs to be born again. And friends, this is something that we all need. This is something that needs to be done for all of us. If we don't have spiritual life, then we cannot see the kingdom of God. It's an unequivocal statement from Jesus. We must be born again. But what does that mean, to be born again? The analogy is plain enough, it seems, but it's easy to get confused here. Some of you may be familiar with the Barna Group. They do sociological research for Christians. And in 2016, they put out a state of the church. I think they do this every year. According to their research and findings, 73% of Americans in 2016 identify as Christians. 73%. I wonder if that surprises you. It surprises me. But while 73% identify as Christians, only 35% of Americans identify as born again. Do you sense a little bit of a confusion about what it means to be born again? The question is, is there a category for someone who can be a Christian and not born again? I think the Bible is very clear right here. Jesus says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot be a Christian. You can't truly have spiritual life without being born again. But what does it mean to be born again? If so many people think they're Christians and not born again, um, maybe you're confused. Maybe, um, Maybe you've come and you don't understand what this might mean. Maybe you've never heard this. Well, Nicodemus is confused as well. He, he seems to have no category for this, so that when he responds to Jesus in verse 4, he, he, does, he gives an overly literal and, and, and crass interpretation of what Jesus has just said. Shall a man be born when he's old? How can that happen? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? But Nicodemus doesn't understand And that's the theme throughout this whole section, is that Nicodemus is confused. Even after Jesus responds to him in verses 5 through 8, look at verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He's confused. He doesn't understand. And then in verse 10, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. He says, you're the teacher in Israel, and yet you don't understand these things. As a teacher in Israel, in fact, as the teacher in Israel, to quote Jesus, Nicodemus should have understood because he, he would have known his Old Testament and, and actually what we find in this idea of being born again is it's an allusion to something that God has promised through the prophets. We, we learn that the substance of what it means to be born again can be found in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27, which we read earlier. In Ezekiel um, 36, it says this, verse 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my voice. Nicodemus should have had this verse, should have known this as Jesus was speaking and explaining what it meant to be reborn. So in verses 5 through 8, we have two ways that Jesus is explaining what this new birth is. It is, he alludes to the Old Testament passage in Ezekiel, and then he also gives us a lesson from nature. So let's talk about that allusion to Ezekiel. You know, uh, verse 6, look there. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is making clear that a birth of the flesh and a birth of the spirit, there are two kinds of births. We can be physically, naturally born, and then we can be supernaturally born, spiritually born. And to see the kingdom, we need to be born of the spirit. But jump back up to verse 5. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is where that allusion to Ezekiel comes into play. Perhaps when just coming to this text, we might see born of water and the Spirit, you might think, okay, that's referring to someone who's born naturally and then someone who's born spiritually born of water and then born of spirit. But, but actually, water, it doesn't refer to a natural birth. Water, some have also thought that maybe it refers to baptism. Someone who's born of water has been baptized and born of the spirit. But that wouldn't have made sense uh, for Nicodemus, and it doesn't make sense of the nature of baptism, that unless you are baptized, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What's true here is that Jesus is pointing Nicodemus, this teacher in Israel, back to his Old Testament. To that reality that God will cleanse. God will put his spirit in us. So what is the reality of Ezekiel 36, that new covenant promise that God is is foretelling? Well, God was promising new life. He was promising that God's people will be sprinkled with water in such a way that they will be cleansed from all their sin. God's people will, will, will have the Spirit of God living within them. They will have new hearts. What is prophesied in Ezekiel comes to be a reality in the life of Jesus as he's talking to Nicodemus. So this new birth, to be born again, is to have the Spirit of God in you, and it's to be totally cleansed from your uncleanness before the Lord. But he also gives us a lesson from nature. Look at verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, here it's clear. It means that the Spirit, like the wind, moves wherever he wishes. 
You can see a tree on a really windy day and the wind just bustling through and you know, the, the leaves falling off or the tree even bending over. We can't see the wind, but we can see its effects. Well, similarly, we cannot see the Spirit, but we can see how it affects change in the lives, in the life of believers, in the lives of those that the Spirit indwells. So friends, what is this new birth? It, well, what's so clear is that even for Nicodemus, it, while it's not clear for him, what's clear to us here is that salvation is a gift from God. That God is the founder and there is no co-founder of salvation. God is the author of salvation. Salvation begins and ends with God. And no amount of knowledge, no amount of righteousness can substitute that new life that God must provide. God must save us by giving us, granting us new life. And so, friends, we should boast in God. We should put all of our boast in God and and what he's done. There is no other um, reason for us to boast but in God. And perhaps we should be on our knees more often in prayer. Maybe there's a a non-Christian in your life that you've shared the gospel with time and time again, and it just seems to fall on deaf ears. Go to the Lord in prayer. It is the Lord that must awaken new spiritual life in him or her. So salvation is a gift, and it starts with a new birth. But it is biblically unintelligible for us to speak about this new birth apart from faith in Christ. If someone has been given new spiritual life, then they will also, according to the Bible, have faith in God's Son. And those two realities are inextricably bound. It's, we can't speak of the new birth without faith in Christ. So this leads us to our second point. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith in Christ. It is a gift that we must receive by faith in Christ. As we seem to go further and further into the text, the gift that God gives us in salvation just seems to grow bigger and bigger. As we learn that salvation begins with something that we cannot do, It's God's grace that gives us new spiritual life. And then as we continue, we learn that God gives us his son and that we believe by faith and that even that faith is a gift. The gift that God gives of salvation is just growing. Look at verses 14 through 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, here Jesus is continuing his dialogue with Nicodemus. He's, he's helped him to understand a bit about his inability. You are totally unable to save yourself. You need God to give you new life. And now he wants to share who he is. Who is the Son? Who is this Son of Man? 
Well, Jesus points back to the Old Testament again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you know Numbers 21, and we don't have time to turn there, it is a, an amazing passage. The people of God are in the wilderness, and Moses is over them and leading them through the wilderness, and they're complaining. Why did you take us out of Egypt, where we had all these comforts, even though you were in slavery? And now we're going to die here. And so they were grumbling and complaining. And so God justly sends fiery serpents into their midst as punishment. And when the people realize we have messed up, we have screwed up, we have complained against God, they plea for mercy. And what does God do? He does this strange thing. He tells Moses to go craft a fiery serpent, a bronze serpent, and to put it on a pole. And that for anyone who's been bitten, if they look at that serpent, they will live. And what's amazing about that is that it happened. People looked at the serpent, and though the venom was in their veins, God saved them just by looking at this bronze serpent. Well, what's amazing is that this is a picture of Jesus, and it is even a small picture of Jesus. Just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, Christ was lifted up on the cross. And just like the people who would look at the serpent and believe and were saved, people who look on Christ will be saved. But how much more? That when we look to Christ and have faith in the lifted up one, that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. Not life that will extend until 20, 30 more years, but life eternally. Live forever. And also, this bronze serpent, it, it wasn't alive. It, it never had life in itself. And it itself couldn't give life. But Jesus does. Jesus is life. Is life itself. And he himself was willingly crucified. Was put up on the cross so that whoever believes in him would not perish. The bronze serpent in and of itself couldn't save anyone. But God saves sinners. So the message here is clear. Look to Christ. Look to him. Acknowledge your utter desperation that the venom of your sin has so um, attacked your body that you are dead and that you need a Savior to save you. And that if you do look to him, believe in him, what is the gift? It's the gift of eternal life. And what's more than this is that all of this was God's loving plan. We see this in the next verses, 16 through 18. This is the plan of the Father to send his Son to save us. These verses are are so familiar and so obvious to us that sometimes their obviousness can be obscured. But let's look together 
at John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's consider the richness of these verses. God so loved the world. Some of us mistakenly think of God the Father as pure, purely wrathful towards sinners. It is true. His wrath does burn against our sin. Justly so. But that is an incomplete picture. And this verse helps to correct it. God so loved the world. And it was his love for the world that was this motivation in sending his son. The gift of salvation comes from God lovingly. And it comes to us as what it says, the world. The world is not just every single person on the planet. What's being communicated here is that the world is the evil rebels of the world. The evil and um, rebellious sinners that make up the world. As one commentator put it, God's love here is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, the magnitude of this gift just grows as we consider who God gave. God didn't give one of many sons. He gave his only son. God did not hold back his only son for us. What a gift. There is no greater gift. God has gifted himself to us and at the greatest cost. And then what for? What for? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to save rebellious sinners. He didn't send his son, as it says in verse 17 and 18, to condemn the world. No, the world is already condemned for its sin. Because of our sin and, it, and the wages of sin, our death, we already are condemned because we are all sinners. But God sends Jesus to save. And his mission was focused to save sinners. So, friend, how do we respond to this amazing gift that God gives us and this growing gift as we see it in this text? Well, friend, trust in, believe in, glory in this greatest gift. Glory, trust, believe in Christ and consider the great love of the Father who who selflessly gave of his only Son that he might bring many sons and daughters to him. For those here who have not yet trusted in Christ, trust in him. 
Look to the lifted up son and trust in him and you will be forgiven of your sin. So for those who have been born again, who have trusted in Christ for salvation, for those who have received these amazing gifts from God, what is the effect of having received these gifts in their life? How does receiving these amazing gifts change us? This leads us to our third and final point, that salvation is a gift that transforms radically. And it transforms our affections. It transforms what you love. Look at verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, referring to Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, there is so much in this text. There is so much in John 3. But what's clear here is that for those who have been born again, who have received the gift of Christ by faith, their lives are going to look different. And in fact, that should be a source of confidence for us. It says that when our works are evil, it proves that we ourselves are evil. When our works are righteous and faithful, we prove that what? We prove that we love the light. We prove that we love the Lord when our lives reflect that. Our lives are a sort of test to help us see that God has truly indwelt us and that he is living inside of us and that the great gift that God has given to us in Christ is transforming and changing our lives. John picks up this line of thought all throughout his letter in 1 John. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see the connection with someone being born of God and practicing righteousness? It's not only that, but in chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 John, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The new birth that God works in us, it changes us so that the pattern of our life is to practice righteousness and to not practice sinning. If, you know, if you've read through 1 John and, and you're a Christian, you know that sin doesn't disappear. We're not just magically sinless. But the pattern of our life evidences and proves that we have been born of God as we practice righteousness and, and, and don't practice sinning. But perhaps the, one of the greatest ways that we prove and show and evidence that we have been born of God and that we do believe in God's gift, Christ, is, is 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. One of the greatest evidences that we can display to the world that we are born of God is by loving one another. A love for a neighbor, a love for God. These are the two greatest commands, and the whole sum of the Christian life can be summed up there. Love of God and love of neighbor. Not hatred for our neighbor. Not racism towards our neighbor. Or we elevate ourselves or one race above another. Love of God is what characterizes the people of God. Because we have been born of God and been gifted Christ. Well, this is a radical transformation that takes place in, the, in our lives. It's a radical transformation that should change our marriages. So, so that in our marriages, husbands and wives aren't fighting for their rights. But we are giving of ourselves to one another. There's a self-giving love that reflects the self-giving love of the Father. Similarly, family members, brothers, sisters, you know that I really want that toy. I have a two-year-old, so this is, sharing is really hard. I really want that toy. And uh, no, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give you the toy. It's a petty way, but I, if my two-year-old were here, he would, he would say amen. There's a, a self-giving love that should characterize and shape our families and not only our families, but this community, this church community. Are you known to be a church that is giving of themselves, that is inconveniencing themselves and, and putting their own desires in the backseat in order to love and, and mirror God's self-giving love that he has given his son? So how can I hold back this or that? I, I, I should give that, that others might experience the love of God. Well, I think sometimes this rich theology of, of God's gift to us can feel abstract. But friends, it was not abstract for Nicodemus. Um, he may not have understood that very night that he met Jesus, but if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 19. Jesus was lifted up. He went to the cross. In verse 30 of 19, he says, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then skip down to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. But who was with him? Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom for the Jews. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It did not remain abstract for Nicodemus. Nicodemus saw firsthand Christ lifted up. And he came and he gave of himself, bringing 75 pounds in weight of of spices to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. Not only respecting Jesus, but believing on Jesus. Believing Jesus to be the lifted up one that he must believe in. Friends, I wonder how our lives might be shaped and changed and transformed as we hear of what God has done for us. This great gift that God has wrapped up and he has given to us in Jesus. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know this great gift, let me urge you to to believe on him even this morning. Believe on Christ, who is the greatest gift. We are undeserving rebels. We have all turned aside, gone our own way, and yet God has gifted us with Christ. How might your life look like you're living in the gift? How might your life be full of giving, of self-giving, as you reflect your great Savior? who gave himself for you. In a moment, we're going to sing, All I Have is Christ. And isn't that the truth? If you are a Christian, all you have is Christ, not your righteous deeds, not your wisdom, none of that. All we have is Christ. In verse 2, it says, But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Friends, God has saved us mightily by gifting us with himself. Let's glory in our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. And Father, at times we are ungrateful, unmindful of the gift that you have given. But Father, impress the words of John 3 on us. Lord, that you so loved us that you gave. You gave your only Son. Father, we thank you for this amazing gift. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to display in our lives your love for the world and your self-giving. Help us to give of ourselves, even this afternoon and this week. Transform us by the washing of the water of the word. Make us more like you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.